Hope everybody's doing well this morning. How many of you guys in your homes like to tell bedtime stories? I know that's a big thing in the Giesler household. Wyatt's really into, like, dinosaurs right now, so we have a lot of T-Rex stories. Uh, I don't want to give you guys, like, especially you guys who have young kids, I don't want to give you the wrong impression that at our house it's all uh, calmness at bedtime and we tell these stories and everybody's smiling and happy and laughing because some nights it's like chaos and there's screaming and gnashing of teeth and crying and that's really just me, not the kids. And we're just like, go to bed, you know, I need some rest. But there are nights when it's a little more calm and we tell uh, our bedtime stories And Ava, my five-year-old, loves to tell a story about Lucy. Now, Lucy is a unicorn. And Lucy's a unicorn that has magical powers. And Lucy has like a rainbow mane. And uh, she comes to our house, and we get on her back, and she flies us to magical lands. So sometimes we go to like Candyland. Who doesn't want to go to Candyland, right? Uh, We go to places where it's like, sunshine and rainbows and puppy dogs and everything is happy and good and and easy. Uh, And I'm really just telling you all this to say that the scripture that we're looking at this morning is not a bedtime story. It's pretty tough. In fact, the, the title that I gave this sermon is Don't Be Surprised When the World Hates You. So this isn't one of those warm and fuzzy sections of scripture that we get to study. In fact, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we would say that it makes us a little bit uncomfortable. When we read it, when we think about it, it makes us squirm in our seats a little bit. And that's okay. It's a hard teaching. But the important thing is that we wrestle with it today. That as we look at these words, that we try to digest them, that we try to take them in. And hopefully that the Spirit will, will use these words to impart some truth on us, some truths that we need to hear Because I think that you will find that what Jesus is telling us here this morning is vitally important to living the Christian life. In fact, Christ thought these things so important that he includes them in his final discourse or his farewell address to his disciples. Ryan last week kind of set the stage for us and he told us that Jesus here in chapter 15 is speaking to his disciples at the Last Supper. So Judas has left to betray Christ. The wheels have been set in motion. And so Jesus knows that his time on earth is short. In fact, he's looking at hours. And the cross is looming over him. And he knows this. And so he wants to spend his final hours here on earth with his disciples, giving his final instructions, his last words, if you will. He wants to comfort them But most of all, he wants to prepare them for the things that are to come in their lives. Because it's this ragtag group of believers, these disciples, these outcasts of society. Jesus has brought these men to himself. And it's through these guys, these guys are going to be the vehicle for spreading his word. They're going to be the bedrock of the early church. So if Christ thought these words worthy of his beloved disciples in his last hours on earth, These are words we need to listen to and pay attention to. So with that in mind, I just want to review a little bit of where we've been here in chapter 15. Last week, Ryan did a really good job of helping us unpack the first 17 verses of this chapter. 
And it's here that we see the last I am statement in the Gospel of John. And it's through the statement that we get this beautiful illustration of Jesus as the true vine and as God the Father as the vine dresser. We saw that as believers, we are branches on that vine. We get this picture of Christ sustaining us, of giving us life. And we see God the Father as the gardener. He's going through and he's, he's removing the dead branches. And he's pruning the branches that remain. The believers that remain, he's pruning us so that we may bear greater fruit. So as Christ begins to explain this metaphor further, he's calling on us to abide in him. And he's telling us that apart from him, apart from the vine, our works are useless. He expands on this idea in verse 9 by calling on us to abide in his love. And as we do this, as we lean into his love, as we sink deep into his grace and mercy, we experience a new kind of freedom. A freedom to love as he loved us. A freedom to love self-sacrificially. A freedom to love radically. A love that calls for us to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And in verse 11, we see that Christ gives us these words so that our joy may be more full or more complete. So that we can experience the joy of abiding in Him. And through this, ultimately, ultimately that we can love each other well. So with all of that in mind, I just want to begin to unpack our Scripture for this morning, beginning here in verse 18. Uh, before we jump into that, I just want to give you kind of three points that I want us to keep in mind as we look at this Scripture. Point number one. Scripture tells us that we either abide in Christ or we abide in the world. There's really no in-between. We're either aligned with Christ or we're aligned with the world. Point number two. Who we are aligned with, who we abide in, has a cost. Point number three. If we are aligned with Christ... He promises to send us a helper. A helper who will testify to your heart so that you can be a witness to a lost and dying world. So with those three key points in mind, let's just take a look at verse 18 and 19. And we need to remember here that this is Christ in his last hours and he's speaking to his disciples. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So how does that make you feel when you read that? I mean, honestly, how does it make you feel, all this hate? You know, I don't really uh, wake up each morning and go, man, I want to make some people hate me today. You know, I don't get up and tell Brooke she looks fat and whatever she's wearing or... Uh, go to work and, and cuss out my employees and, or, and tell my patients that their breath stinks and all this stuff, you know, because I want my wife to love me and she doesn't look fat in anything she wears. And uh, I, uh, you know, want my employees to respect me. I want my patients to come back and see me. So, you know, I don't wake up wanting to be hated. And I don't think most of us normal folks do. We want to be loved. We want to be accepted. There might be some kind of weirdos out there that, kind of thrive on the hate, you know, they like to be hated, but 
really deep down inside, I promise you, they want to be loved. They want to be accepted. That's really one of the strongest drives in people, this drive to be accepted. But here, Jesus isn't really making any bones about it. He's saying that if you are aligned with me, if you are in Christ, if you are a part of the vine, you're not going to be of the world, and the world's going to hate you for it. Now, here's the thing. At this point, the disciples really didn't understand the complete redemptive plan. They really didn't understand that as Christ is speaking to them. We see this throughout the Gospels. They've been looking to Christ to usher in this earthly kingdom. They haven't met the resurrected Christ yet. They haven't been given the Holy Spirit. In Matthew 16, we see Peter rebuking Christ when Christ says that he has come to die. Peter rebukes him because this doesn't fit into Peter's narrative on what Christ was here for. In Luke chapter 9, we see the disciples arguing about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. So they want Christ to bring in this earthly kingdom. They want him to be an earthly conqueror, to kind of set up this kingdom to bring back Israel and all of its glory and to throw off the Romans, throw off all of their foes. And they're really hoping to kind of have a big piece of the pie in the new kingdom. They want to be a part of the cabinet in the new administration, right? So I kind of think about it. When I think about this, I think of like the American political system, you know. And so they want to set Jesus up. Jesus is going to be the president. And Peter's like, man, I'm going to be the secretary of defense. And, and uh, John comes in and is like, no, Peter, you can't be the secretary of defense. You're crazy. You're, you're going to blow everybody up. You've got a terrible temper. And then James comes in and punches one of them, you know. That's just kind of how I think about it in my mind. But I'm sure that's not how it really went down. But they're yearning for this power. They're yearning for this position and authority. They want to be respected in society. And you have to remember, these guys were social outcasts. They were people on the fringes of Jewish culture. And so this type of power would have been very alluring to them. And so they were really still looking to the world in many ways. So when Jesus speaks these words to them here in verse 18 and 19, this must have been shocking to them. This must have kind of shattered their dreams, shattered their world. It's probably not what they were hoping for. Jesus is telling them that they're going to be hated, they're going to be persecuted, and Jesus knows that ten of the eleven are going to be put to death eventually for their faith. He knows that they have a rough road in store. He knows that, the, that they're going to suffer, that they're going to sacrifice, but he knows that this suffering, this sacrifice, is going to be used to spread the gospel, to set up his church, and he wants them to be prepared for it. He doesn't want them to be surprised when the world hates them. And he, does, he, want, he doesn't want us to be surprised as well. You know, we have the tendency when we look at the Gospels and we see the disciples not getting it, we kind of have a tendency to judge them a little bit and say, you know, what's wrong with them? They were living with Christ day by day. They were seeing him perform these miracles. They were sharing life with him. Peter, John, and James saw him transfigured. And they're still struggling to get it. You know, we kind of see them in this light, but the truth is, we know the rest of the story. 
We know that Christ went to the cross. We know that He rose on the third day. We know that He ascended into heaven. We know that He is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And we still struggle to get it. We often think in the way the disciples were thinking. We want to build an earthly kingdom. We want to be safe. We want to build walls around our lives. We want the American dream. We want to seek safety in the things of this world. We want to seek safety in stuff. You know, we want to be liked and we want to be accepted, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. God gave us this great desire to be loved and accepted, and it should lead us to Him, because that's how we can ultimately be loved and accepted. But the problem is, is when we look to the world for it, at the detriment to our faith. You know, we even make Jesus into this commercialized genie. We're really bad about doing this in America. At Church Under the Bridge yesterday, uh, uh, Andrew O'Kelly was preaching, and he called it the drive-through Jesus. You know, we kind of go through the drive-through at McDonald's, and we say, I want this kind of Jesus, or this kind of Jesus, or this kind. We want to kind of mold him to our own thoughts and ideas of who he should be. We want him to grant our earthly wishes of health, wealth, and happiness. But Jesus here in these first two verses, 18 and 19, what he's doing is he's smashing that idea. He's obliterating that idea. He's saying, if you follow me, if you are aligned with me, there's going to be a cost. He wants them to know this. He doesn't want them to lose heart at the first sign of trouble. Verse 20 and 21. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. You know, a servant is aligned with his master. A servant follows his king into battle. And if the king submits himself to suffering, then the servant can't escape that suffering if the servant is pledged to the master. Alignment with Christ means sharing in his suffering. In Matthew 16, right after Jesus rebukes Peter for questioning his purpose, he says these words to his disciples. And this is a verse that I'm sure all of you are familiar with, but it bears repeating here. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but who loses his life will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Christ is calling them to a life more than earthly comfort, more than earthly security. He's calling them to the battlefield, to a life of lasting substance. Not a cheap life that seeks the things of this world that are ultimately going to fade away. All these things that we use to build up walls, all these things that we use that we make gods with a little g, that we make our idols, they're really not secure at all. Our bank accounts, our jobs, our health, all of those things can be gone in an instant. And they are all going to be gone. They're all going to fade away. 
Verse 21 points out that they will hate them simply because of their alignment with Jesus. Why? Because they don't know Him. They don't know the King. They don't know Christ. And I think this verse is really important for us because it allows us to have compassion on our persecutors. It allows us to have compassion for the people who hate us. They're ignorant of God. They don't know His love. They don't know His mercy. They don't know your King. They're still in rebellion to the King, and therefore they hate you. They hate the King's subjects. One commentator puts it like this. Former rebels who have, by the grace of the king, been won back to loving allegiance to their rightful monarch are not likely to prove popular with those who persist in rebellion. Verse 25 tells us a little more about this hate that we're going to face. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. Psalm 69.4, written a thousand years before the days of Christ, foretells us of this coming hate. More in number than the hairs on my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. Here we see that this hate has been foretold, and it is a part of God's redemptive plan. Through the book of Acts, as we read through the book of Acts, as we study church history, we know that this hate had a purpose. First of all, it was through this hate that Christ was put on the cross. Secondly, without persecution, the church would never have spread. So this hate, in a way, it facilitated the Great Commission. It dispersed believers from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And throughout history, the way that Christians have responded to persecution really has been one of the most effective ways in spreading the gospel. Do we ever think about it that way? Do we ever really see it that way? I mean, when I think about persecution, I often think of it as a scary thing, as a terrible thing. And it is scary, and it is terrible in a way. But what if it is also for our ultimate good and God's ultimate glory? So we see that this hate and this persecution that we face is is not only a part of God's redemptive plan, but in verse 22 through 24, we also see that it is a part of his perfect judgment. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. So many of the Jews at this time, the Pharisees and and, and a lot of the people who had gathered around to hear Christ, They were kind of in this habit of claiming God as their father while at the same time rejecting Jesus. So they would call Jesus a crazy person. They would say that he was demon-possessed, and that was the way that he could perform these miracles. They claimed that they loved the father, 
but they hated the son. And they hated him so much that they ultimately hung him on a cross. And Jesus in, in uh, chapter 16, verse 2, tells his disciples that they're going to do the same thing to them as well. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. Now, how common is that in our world today? You know, it's okay to evoke the name of God, really, throughout the world. But when you claim Jesus, when you're aligned with Christ, that causes problems. In some regions of the world, you'll lose your head for that, or you'll be crucified, or you'll be burned. You'll be martyred. In America, maybe it draws a lawsuit or a protest. Maybe it affects your business. But it is so common. You can claim the name of God, but not Christ. Jesus here is pointing out that it's impossible to reject the words and works of Christ and still love God. So you can't love God and reject Christ. Because Christ is the supreme revelation of God's love. If you reject Him, if you reject His deity, if you reject His teachings, if you reject His atonement on the cross, you've rejected God. Not only have you rejected God, you've shown that you hate God. One commentator says this about these verses. Whether people recognize it or not, Jesus' work was nothing less than God's work. In Jesus' speech, God's words were heard. In Jesus' works, God's activity was seen. Indeed, in Jesus, God himself was seen. Jesus is the one who narrates God in the plane of human existence. Thus, to hate Jesus is to hate God, just as to accept Jesus is to accept his Father. So tightly is Jesus bound up with his Father, both in, in his person and in his words and deeds, that every attitude directed towards him is no less directed towards God. So we see that to love the Father is to love the Son. And to hate the Son is to hate the Father. So here in chapter 15, in these latter verses especially, we see that Jesus is kind of laying out this rough road ahead for his disciples. And really kind of laying out a rough road ahead for all of those who are aligned with him. And so it's tempting to ask ourselves, how do we stay faithful in the midst of this hate? How do we stay faithful in the midst of persecution, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of illness, in the midst of all the trials that we're going to face in this life? And I think the answer to that question is, on your own power, we can't. Our flesh is always going to want to seek the world. It's always going to want to seek comfort. It's always going to want to shy away from the battlefield. Jesus in verse 26 and 27, though, gives us hope. He tells us that a helper is coming. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me 
from the beginning. So Jesus is promising this helper to the disciples. He hasn't come yet. Jesus has told him that, told them that he's got to go. He's got to leave. He's got to go be with the Father. He's got to go to the cross. He's got to be resurrected. He's going to ascend with the Father. But he t- is promising them a helper. For us here today, if you are a believer in Christ, if you are a follower of Christ, you have this helper. You have the Holy Spirit that is there to guide you, to comfort you, to speak to your heart, to give you strength as you face the trials of this life. In verse 26, the Spirit is described as the Spirit of truth that bears witness about Christ. So how does the Spirit bear witness to us about Christ? How does He speak to our hearts about Christ? I think one of the main ways the Spirit bears witness to us is he tells us of the supremacy of Christ over the supremacy of all the treasures in this world. The Spirit enables us to treasure Christ over this world, over everything else. And I think that's the key to living the Christian life. The only way that we can love is Christ's love. It's the only way that we can lay down our lives for each other. It's the only way that we can pick up the cross. The only way that we can walk through suffering is if we treasure Christ more than we treasure the world. And we have to do this in faith. We have to do this in faith knowing that our ultimate reward is going to far outweigh the rewards that we could seek in this world and in this life. You know, in Hebrews 11, uh, chapter 11, this is kind of a famous chapter. It's called the Heroes of Faith chapter. Some people call it that. And we see many examples of men and women throughout history who have placed their faith and trust in God over the things of this world. It's really an uplifting chapter of Scripture. One example is Moses. And in this chapter, chapter 11 and verse 24 through 26, we see a picture of this. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He was looking to the reward. You know, Moses Moses could have easily spent the rest of his life in opulence and comfort as a part of Pharaoh's household. It would have been a great life from an earthly perspective. He would have had all the nicest clothes, the nicest home, whatever he wanted. But he treasured the Lord over the things of this world, over the comfort of this world. And what did he get for it in this world? He got a lot of hardship, a lot of hardship, a lot of difficulty. But he also had an eternal reward that he was looking to. And that's how the spirit of truth testifies to our hearts. That's how we can endure suffering. That's how we can endure hate. That's how we can endure hardship in this life. This is why Paul can say in Philippians, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. 
For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death. So we see that Christ has to be more valuable to us than the world is. The Spirit's going to speak that truth into our lives. He's going to enable us to wage war against our sin, to wage war against our flesh, the flesh that is calling us to the world, the flesh that is calling us to comfort. The Spirit is going to help us fight that, and it is going to be a battle. Throughout your life, you're going to fight that. In the first four verses of chapter 16, Jesus reminds his followers that he is telling them all of these things to keep them from falling away. So I think as we press forward in this life by faith, we need to lock these truths deep down into our hearts because the hour is coming for us. Jesus tells us that the hour is coming. So when that hour comes, we need to remember what he told us. It needs to be there. It's too late once it, once it comes if it's not there. The writer of Hebrews <clears throat> concludes, <coughs> excuse me, concludes his letter with this final exhortation to his readers on what the Christian life should look like. In this section, he gives us this picture of an altar. There's an altar outside the camp. It's outside the city gates. And at this altar, this is where all the atonement sacrifices are burned. He goes on to compare that place to Calvary, to the place where Christ went and died on the cross for our sins. In verse 12 he says, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. And in the very next verse, verse 13 He tells us what our response should be to a love so bold and complete. What our response should be to the cross. He says, therefore, let us go. Let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So I'm just going to leave you with this this morning. Christ has gone outside the gate. He's gone to the altar for you. On the cross, He bore your sin. He paid the price that you could never pay. And if you don't know this, if you're hearing of this Christ for the first time, or maybe you've never really understood who He is, I urge you to consider Jesus. I urge you to consider what He's done, who He is, and I urge you to submit your life to His rule. Because as I said earlier, one of our key points is who you are aligned with has a cost. The cost of being aligned with the world and not Him is eternal separation from Him. And that may not sound that bad to you, but you need to consider this. The only reason that this world isn't tearing itself apart is due to the common grace, the blessing of God. In hell, that blessing will be removed. God will be nowhere to be found. 
and sin will reign free in a way that we cannot even fathom. On the flip side of that, being aligned with Christ has a cost as well. We're called to pick up the cross. We're called to share in his sufferings. But we are also called to an eternal reward, a great inheritance that we really can't comprehend the goodness and love and greatness of that inheritance. So if you're a believer and you might be struggling like I often struggle with, with loving the world too much, we need to heed the words of the author of Hebrews. Therefore, let's go. Therefore, let us go outside the gate. Let us go outside the walls that we've built for ourselves. Let us go into a life of real substance, sharing in Christ's sufferings for His glory, with an eye on our eternal inheritance, the city that is to come. Let's pray. Father, I just praise you that you have gathered us here this morning to hear your word. Father, it is a a tough teaching that you've called on us to endure persecution, to endure hate, to pick up the cross, to suffer. But Father, we praise you that you've given us a helper. You've given us the Holy Spirit so that so that we can endure these things, so that you can speak to our heart, so that you can show us the supremacy of Christ, so that he can be our treasure above everything else. Lord, we know that he is the treasure that will never rust, that will never fade, and that one day, if we've placed our faith in him, we will get to enjoy him eternally. Help us to keep our eyes on that prize. Help us to keep an eye on our inheritance as adopted children. Father, you've shown such grace and mercy to us. Give us the strength to go out into this world and proclaim it. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.